Isaiah 12. Um, Isaiah 12 is the end of the first section of the book, and it is the climax of the first 12 chapters. It's built chapters. It's built on Exodus 15. So to understand Isaiah 12, you, you've got to look back to Exodus 15. Isaiah is drawing us back to Exodus. In Exodus 15, it's the songs of worship that God's people are singing after they are delivered from Egypt. And so you, you need to pause there, and we need to ask why. Why is Isaiah taking us back and quoting the songs of Moses, celebrating the Exodus at the end of this section, the first section of Isaiah? Well, in the same way, Israel sang God's songs of redemption after being brought out of slavery in Egypt, so will God's people sing and worship Him for bringing us out of the bondage of sin in this world. In other words, Isaiah is saying, look, Moses wrote these amazing songs of worship after they'd been brought out of Egypt. And so we will sing for all eternity for God redeeming us and bringing us out of the slavery of sin. So I want to just read Isaiah 12, which is quite short. There's only six verses. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds amongst the people, proclaim that his name is exalted. Verse 5, Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's just pray and ask the Lord to bless our preaching of the Word. Father, as I read this, what stands out to me is you are our salvation and our song. For in eternity you will be our song, Lord, and we will joyfully drink from the wells of salvation, which is you for all eternity. God, and I pray that in this life, and I pray that for this Sabbath day, this day of rest and worship, that you would be our song. And that means that the the, the heart of what's proclaimed and coming out of our heart and mind is a worship, an adoration for who you are. You would literally be our song. Our heart would be moved by you, Lord. And so give us eyes to see now. Give us ears to hear your word. Give me 
simple men the grace to proclaim truth and the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that changes people's lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, I was talking to a doctor, a Hindu doctor, and he was examining my shoulder. And as he was doing that, we began to talk about his background and his faith. And he told me that he was interested in Jesus, but he was Hindu. And so I asked him at the end of our appointment, would you be interested in just reading the words of Jesus with me and talking more about who Christ is? And this is what he said. I don't need to do that. You see, my kids go to a Christian school, and I had a discussion with the chaplain there at that school about my faith. And he said that I am just fine. The chaplain essentially said, it does not matter what door you go through to God as long as you go through a door. It all leads to the same courtyard. It's the same salvation. They're just different trails leading to the same place, according to the chaplain. Now that makes total sense if salvation is through keeping your religious laws and morals right? Then who is to say the Christian laws and morals are any better than the Buddhist or the Hindu or the Muslim or perhaps the person who even makes up their own? They're all basically the same and very valid ways to God, just different paths. You see, the chaplain, though he wore a cross, he was a humanist. And you say, what does that mean? Well, It is the common belief of our day, and you might break it down with four pillars. A humanist first believes in the reason of man. So nothing can be true if it's not reasonable. Therefore, the miracles in the Bible are not true because they're not reasonable, and therefore the Bible's not true. That's how that logic works. The second aspect of humanism that we face all the time is a belief in progress. So that means we're evolving. Man is higher and higher and higher and getting better and better and better as we go. Third aspect of humanism is a belief in science as a guide in this world. So science has replaced religion, faith. So now I have faith in science rather than faith in God. Fourth aspect of humanism and the laugh is maybe the most important is a belief in the self-sufficiency of man. So... Towards God, a humanist sees no need of grace from God or mercy. We believe that we can achieve it by our own merit. Now, Isaiah 12. The prophet is finishing his thoughts on the works of the Messiah here. It's the climax. And he's just told us in chapter 11 about the root of Jesse that would spring up and the fruit that would come from this child from David's family, the Messiah. Two times here he says, in that day. In the day when God comes, when the Messiah comes again to dwell with his people. And in that day, we will be like thirsty people coming out of the desert, drinking from the well of salvation, singing and worshiping him for who he is and what the Messiah has done for us. And at the heart of this text are these words. The heart of the picture that he's painting that eternity will be. 
is this. Behold, God is my salvation. That's Exodus 15, and that's Isaiah 12. He has completely saved me through the work of Jesus. That will be the heart of our eternal song and praise and worship. Now, my friends, I want to ask you, how much do you joyfully drink of the wells of your salvation now? That's the picture of what we'll be doing in eternity. How much are you doing that now? I find, personally, that the main reason that we as believers don't drink from the wells of God is humanism. Sometimes we are more influenced by humanist worldview than we think so that we see that the things are the world are our satisfaction. And if we're honest, sometimes God feels like a dry and weary land, certainly not a well in the desert that we're called to come and drink and be satisfied from. Now, or the place that I gain ability from. And this text says, not only will we drink from the wells in eternity, but we will joyfully drink. You see, you can't have joy in something unless you are partaking of it. Do you see that? You can't have joy in something unless you're partaking of it. They are joyfully singing because they are partaking and experiencing God in eternity. So I enjoy fly fishing. I enjoy it because I love to partake of the river early in the morning. I love to partake and experience the line in my hand as I cast. I love to see a fish come up and take something I've made. I partake of it, and it gives me joy. Now, let's just suppose that I slept in in the morning. My fly rod was on the bed. I I didn't get up. I didn't do anything. I'm not partaking of it, and it's not giving me joy. If you are a believer... You must partake of God to have the joy in the Lord. Now, this well is something that you possess now. Not just in eternity, but now. A well only the saved have. If you're a believer, this well that he is describing that you're going to drink from, it's in you now because it's Christ in you. John 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. Now this he said about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus Christ is in the believer. He is a well that we drink from now and for all eternity Jesus Christ physically with us is that well our eternal joy and satisfaction. And the result in eternity, drinking and experiencing and knowing Him will be joy, but the result here is the same. So here's our main idea today. Joyfully draw from the well of your salvation. That's verse 3. Not just in eternity, but now. Now there's three things that we want to see. Isaiah breaks it up. He gives us two songs. Verse 1 and 2. And then verse 4 to 6. And in those two songs, 
we see three major reasons for worship and enjoying God. Here's the first, point one. If you're taking notes, please write this down. Worship because God turned his anger away from you. Verse one. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. So verse 1 and verse 4 in your Bibles, if you'll look, you'll see they both say in that day. And so when we see that, we say, what day? What day is he talking about that all this is happening? Well, you have to back up. Chapter 11, verse 10 uses the same language, in that day. It tells us what day we're talking about. I'll read that for you. In that day, the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So like we said two weeks ago, Jesse was King David's father. God made a promise to King David that a king would come from his line. And his kingdom would never end. Isaiah has told us a great deal about this king, this Messiah up to now. That he would come as a child. He'd come from a virgin. He'd be like a branch shooting up from the house of David. He would be called Mighty God. And through him, the whole world would be filled with the knowledge of God. Now chapter 12 is the climax of that. The ending of all those thoughts here. And so when he says in that day two times, he's talking about the day that the Messiah comes. He's picking up what he's just told us. His second coming, where he will judge and purify all things and make peace. It's what he said in chapter 11. The lion and the lamb will lie down together. The child will put their hand over the poisonous snake's hand. And God and man will dwell in peace. He's talking about the second coming of Jesus. Now notice the heart of their song. Notice what he's saying here. God's anger is turned away. That's what described here. Though you were angry with me. Listen. Man's greatest problem is not whether we believe in God and His existence or not, but God's anger towards us. And what do we do with that? The Bible never teaches that the anger of God turns to love when we do good things. It never says that, that, that we, by doing good things, change God's anger into love for us. Or that the God of the Old Testament is angry and the God of the New Testament is love. We hear that all the time and it's absolute rubbish. God is angry with the sin of man from Genesis to Revelation, and that's what he's saying here. Though you are angry with me. Now, why are they worshiping? Well, look in your Bible again. Your anger turned away that you might comfort me. This is the work of the Messiah, is to turn God's anger away from you towards himself. God didn't just forget His anger about our sin or decide He would just turn over a new leaf or change His mind about us. But in His grace, God became man. And God the Father placed His anger, turned it away from you, and turned it towards His Son on the cross. 
This was the Father's eternal plan. Why? Well, look there again. So that you might know His comfort. That means so that you might know Him and the comfort of a relationship with Him. Last year I read a tale of two cities by Charles Dickens. And this is what he said that caught my eye. I want to read you this quote. If the day of judgment had only been ascertained to be a dress day, everybody there would have been eternally correct. If the day of judgment was a dress day, then everybody in England in that time would be correct. What he's saying is people think that God's judgment will be like a dress day, like going to the Kentucky Derby, right? Where you put on your finest clothes and you're applauded by God for all the good things we've done. And Charles Dickens is saying... Nobody believes that God is actually angry with us or our sin. It's just the opposite. But I want you to see something. God's anger is good, and it's right, and it's part of His glory, and it's part of why we worship Him. Let me explain. God can't be good and a God worthy of worship unless he gets really angry at sin and evil. A righteous God must love good and hate evil wherever it is found, including in the heart of man, and he must do it with a passion. If God were passive towards sin and evil, you would never say he is good or worthy of worship. Imagine that you're on holiday in Russia, and there's a Russian police officer wearing a little badge kind of like this. And this Russian police officer is walking down the road, and he sees a group of youth, and they've got an older woman cornered, and they are just pummeling her in the worst kind of way. They're stealing everything that she has. And you come up to him when this is over, and you say to him, Why did you do nothing? I thought you were a police officer. Why would you just stand there? And he says this. There is no good. There is no evil. Therefore, there is nothing for me to get angry about. God is good. Therefore, he has anger towards sin. Does that make sense? For all eternity, verse 4 says, we will drink from the wells of salvation and worship, which means we will understand more and more of the greatness of God's justice, holiness, anger towards sin, and yet in His grace, His love, and His mercy, He planned, He promised, and He presented His own Son to turn it away from us and towards Him so we might know Him and be comforted in knowing Him. So joyfully drink from the wells of your salvation first, which means know and worship God for turning His anger away from you towards His own Son. Second, point two, worship because God has become your salvation. Verse 2 and 3, if you'll read that with me in your Bibles. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With you, you will will draw water from the wells of salvation. To be a Christian is to say, 
from first to last, God and God alone is my salvation. He is saved by His grace and through my faith. Through Christ, He has completely saved me from His anger to His comfort. From a position of of receiving anger to a position of receiving comfort. Archbishop Temple, the old Anglican bishop, says this, The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is our sin. (laughs) Love that. The only thing we give God to be saved is our sin. And as soon as I try to add my works or my righteousness or anything I do, it is no longer grace, it's works. No longer the gospel, but humanism. God is no longer my Savior, I am. Do you see that? Now, he says, because God is my salvation, he gives all these awesome things. I will trust and not be afraid. So when God is my salvation, then I am free from fearing God's anger to trust and find my strength in Him and His Word. And he uses these three great words. Comfort, strength, trust. And I love the fourth. He's my song. That's the position of a believer's heart towards the Lord because He's our salvation. Now, consider when the gospel takes root in our heart and by faith God is our salvation, our trust, our song, there's joy. Verse 3, look in your Bibles with me. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now He's taking us back to Exodus again. Exodus 15, which he was quoting in verse 2, God is my salvation. Now he's skipping ahead a little bit, and he's giving you a picture of Exodus 17. Think about Israel in the desert of sin with no water. They are quarreling. They're angry. They are complaining to Moses. And God says to Moses, I will stand before you at the rock of Horeb. Strike it, and water will flow. And yet they complained. And so God called the place Meribah, which means quarreling. Yet in the desert, God was their salvation, wasn't He? You see, God is saying, when the Messiah comes, I am your salvation. And it means I will be the well that you drink from from all eternity. Christ will be with us physically. And your heart will turn from the quarreling heart in the desert to absolute joy as you drink and partake more of me. In other words, Jesus will be with us. He is our well. And for all eternity, God with us will be a source of joy. So for all eternity, you will partake more and more and more in knowing God. And the more you know Him, the more you will enjoy Him. And like it says, you will launch and erupt in worship because of the joy you experienced. My friends, you have a right and a duty to partake of that same well right now. When I lived in Asia years ago, I lived in uh, Mongolia, and for one year I lived in a yurt. Do you know what a yurt is or a gear? It's like a, a, it's a round nomadic house. 
made out of felt, and, they, and there are no windows in it. But a, there's a big stove right in the middle with a pipe going up, and in the top of a yurt or a gear is a, is a round opening. And so over that round opening is a giant piece of felt, and you've got a rope, and you pull it over the opening when you want to, when you want it to be dark, windows closed, or you pull it back in opening. So at night it's quite cold there, and so before you go to bed, you would you'd get your felt and you'd pull it over the opening. And everything is dark and cold. <laughs> and you sleep. And when you wake up in the morning, it's freezing and it's dark. And so the nomads would just get that rope and they would slightly open the window. Just, just tick it back a little bit. And beams of light would come crashing into that darkness. And then as the day went on, they would open it more, and more light came in, and you realize there's 34 people sleeping in this gear that I'm in. And then by the time the midday came, that completely open, and sunlight is crashing in to the entire gear. When you become a Christian, God put his light, his well in you, and that well is Jesus Christ. And that makes you capable, please listen, capable of the sweetest delights when you are drinking from that well. What does that look like? When you're worshiping, fellowshipping, praying, meditating on these words. When you're doing those things, you've got the windows wide open and the light of Christ is coming through into your life. These are the windows that let in Christ, the means of grace by which we drink from and experience that joy. But also, because He is in you, we have the quickest senses of pain and conviction. When you disobey God, you're covering those windows, you're filling your house and your heart with darkness, and you're quenching His presence. God's design in saving you is in this life to put a well in you, Christ in you, to satisfy you, transform you into a man or woman that serves, knows, glorifies Him on earth. But Christ will not just be your light and well here on earth. It will be for all eternity. The gear will live, be lifted up and the sun will be before you. And you will enjoy Him and drink from those wells. And the more you drink and know Him, the more you will launch and worship and praise. And so this is not my notes, but let me just say, heaven's not boring. <laughs> Amen? Heaven will be the most exciting place that you've ever been because God is there. And every day you will be exploring more and more and more and more of who He is. And He never ends. And yet that well is in you now. Here's point three. And we'll close with this. Worship God in your midst. That's the third thing. Joyfully drink from the wells of salvation. Point three. Worship God in your midst. Let's just read verses 4 to 6. This is the second song. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds amongst the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praise to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout, sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Notice 
Sing praise. Give thanks. Make known his deeds. Proclaim his name. Shout. Sing for joy. All calls to worship, right? Why? Well, he tells us. Look at verse 5. He has done gloriously, which means towards mankind, he's revealed his greatness. He's done something amazing. What's he done? Verse 6. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is why the shouting. This is why the singing. God again dwells with man. The reason heaven is heaven is because God has turned aside His anger and dwells with man through Christ. So, Isaiah is telling us the story of redemption. Chapters 1 to 12. He starts in chapter 1. Israel, you are my covenant children. I brought you up. You've left me. You've rebelled against me. You've turned away from me so that I don't even know you anymore. Now, all you want to do is make sacrifices and religious things and think I'm happy with you. Turn away from your sin. Return to me. But I will give you an amazing sign. I will do something great amongst you to believe. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and he will be God with you. He will fulfill the promises that I made to your father David. He'll be a prince of peace, the great counselor. His kingdom will never end so that the whole world will once again be filled with the knowledge of God. That's chapter 1 to 11. Look how he closes the very end of chapter 12. Shout for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. God again has restored man through Christ and dwells with us for all eternity. How do we think and live this? How do you take this from your head to your heart so it affects how you live this week? One thing, quite short. Don't allow humanism to eclipse grace in your life. Don't allow humanism to eclipse. What I mean by that is replace. Think about an eclipse, a solar eclipse. The sun is covered. Don't allow humanism to replace grace in your life. We live in humanist times. But there are not times of unbelief that we live in. Times of believing in the power of self. That's what reigns. And if there is a God, the world says he is for us regardless of what we do. So my question is, has humanism eclipsed and replaced grace in your life? What do I mean? It means I don't need God's assistance. I don't need God's strength. I don't need his ability. I don't need his forgiveness. I don't need that well that you're talking about except to save me. I can figure it out on my own. I can do it. My friends, when trials strike your life and your answer is, I can figure it out. I am not turning to God. I'm turning to my own resources. Then humanism has eclipsed grace in your life. God has become only a watchmaker who got the ball rolling, who saved you, but you've taken it from there. 
But that's not the gospel of Isaiah 1 to 12. It says, God is my salvation from first to last. He has put a well in you, Christ in you. And he did that because he loves you and is committed to you and is wanting to comfort you, to counsel you. Now, last thought. I know that the more you drink from the well, which is Christ through worship, communion, meditation on His Word, studying His Word, the more God will be glorified in you and the more joy, comfort, and ability you will have in this life. Amen? Father, I thank You for the well. The well is a person. It's Jesus. Lord, we don't, we don't have a well when we're born into this world. Father, we have a broken heart. We have sin. We have pollution. And yet we're still creating your image and can do some great things. But yet, God, we can't remove your anger towards our sin. I praise you for the Messiah, the branch of David, Lord, who came down to be sacrificed for us. And I thank you, Lord, that he didn't just save us and set us out into this world. You're not just a watchmaker who makes things and sets it out. You put your well in us. You put Christ in us, Lord, to walk with you now and forever. And we long for that day when Christ will be with us physically and we see him face to face and know him and we'll sing his praise. But now, in this life, in this church, in our community, let us be a church, people, For you are our song. You are our comfort. You are our trust. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.